the business savvy singer. Hey there, and welcome to the business savvy singer podcast. I'm Dr. Greta Pope, and I'm so glad that you're here. This podcast is dedicated to vocalists and to those who love them. We interview singers who are working professionally to get a glimpse into their lives and celebrate their personal journey to success. Join us weekly to learn how to move your career forward. Get tips and recommendations to help you realize the career of your dreams. You're listening to the Business Savvy Singer Podcast, brought to you by the privatemusicstudio.net, providing online education to build sustainable careers in music. Also, Eternal Wolf Music, producing audio for every need, and Greta Pope Entertainment, for the finest in entertainment. Hey there, and welcome to the Business Savvy Singer podcast. I am so excited today. I have a gentleman with me from San Francisco, California. His name is Bobby Vickers, and Bobby is the creator of the character Bud E. Love, of the fabulous Bud E. Love show. I'm so thrilled. Bobby, how are you doing? I couldn't be better, Greg. So so delightful to be with you uh, during these hard times. But it is the holiday season, and we should be uh, sharing love. And that's love spelled L-U-V, by the way. (laughs) That's absolutely fabulous. So tell us, you know, I, I want you to get into the whole buddy love thing, but I want to know about your life as a singer, how you got started, um, and just everything, everything about you. We want to know everything. Okay. Well, I grew up in a little town north of uh, Boston called Marblehead, Massachusetts. And uh, when I was about three years old, three and a half, we moved back to Marblehead and Um, from Connecticut where my father was working in New York and my mother and father wanted to get back to Marblehead because they loved that little town. Mm -hmm. And uh, at about four or five years old, I was often asked to come down at the uh, family uh, cocktail parties for their friends. And and my brother would be upstairs sleeping at these 6.30, 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, whatever. And I'd come down in my pajamas and... My father would look at me and said, you know, on cue, Bobby, do the Louis Armstrong impression. <laughs> and there'd be 25 people, and I, he'd hand me the little Amity trumpet, a little plastic trumpet oh, and a handkerchief, and I would go immediately into Louis Armstrong, <laughs> of course, nailing it, you know. Oh and everybody gosh. be on the floor just laughing, going, this, wow. who is this kid? This is unbelievable. So that was really the beginning of uh, me realizing the power and uh, entertaining people that I had. Yeah. Um, from there, uh, I you know, started playing drums when I was about 12 years old and I was in a band making money wow. during the summer uh, with my band playing all around the, uh, North, the North Shore <laughs> of Boston. Uh, you know, Swamp's Good, Marblehead, Beverly, Manchester, they all had these yacht clubs. And we would go around and play the yacht clubs. Then after that, uh, when I was about 14, 
um, the band that I had would get gigs at fraternities up in New Hampshire, like Dartmouth uh, University of New Hampshire. And we go and do like a weekend of fraternity parties. So, wow. Yeah, from there, I had a band in, in uh, junior high school. I had another band in um, high school. And when I got to high school, the Cambridge School of Weston in uh, Weston, Massachusetts, I started uh, really develop, developing my acting chops mm -hmm. as well as my singing and band leader chops. Um, so uh, after high school, I... Oh, my goodness. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> that's the spinners, by the way. In case you didn't know. That's great. <laughs> Whenever you call me, I'll be there. I'll be around. Oh, that's cute. So, uh, at any rate, um, we uh, I had a band in high school, uh, and I was, you know, going back and forth. Do I want to pursue music and singing, or do I want to pursue acting? I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston for one semester, and Hated it. It was just not fun. Uh, and uh, it wasn't for me. Yeah. So I, I spent the rest of the year working and, uh, you know, playing with my band. And at the end, you know, like towards the end of that year in October, I moved to Los Angeles and spent uh, about a month and a half in L.A. because uh, I'd been accepted to the uh, California Institute of the Arts for acting mm -hmm. i never went oh my god i went into new i went yeah oh, <laughs> you're popular today i'm sorry <laughs> um what uh what happened then is um uh, i went into la to visit friends that were playing music mm -hmm. so i i shifted back to wanting to play music because they were doing it and i'd already had a really thorough um acting uh, career in high school Believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, I went to a really progressive high school that had a theater department and everything that I was going to learn at CalArts, I'd already done. Yeah. So at that point, I moved to San Francisco, 1972, and had numerous bands and you know, just kept going on and on. I finally had a band called Bubaloo and the Extremes. Hmm. And... Um, Started playing the Vegas circuit, playing uh, the Sahara. Yeah. Uh, both Reno, Tahoe, and Vegas. They turned to the Hiltons. We were doing that and we were playing locally uh, and also working on original music in that group as well. Mm -hmm. That group broke up. Another group started. That group broke up. <laughs> and my former wife at that point said, Okay, you've been in bands. Why don't you act? Why don't you do an, uh, an acting thing? I've never seen you act. Let's let's see that. So she said, don't worry about the, the bills. Don't worry about anything. Um, why don't you go out for a play? So I, I auditioned for the Peninsula Civic Light Opera's uh, Best Little Four House in Texas, mm -hmm. which is a, a nice theater company in uh, near San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, I got the lead. I got the lead role. Great, that's bad. Did the play and got rebitten by the acting bug. Yeah. At which point I decided I'm not putting a band together. I'm putting a show together. Ah, okay, okay. And I created this character, the fabulous Bud. That's one word, space, middle initial, E, period, love, L-U-V. <laughs> it was shortened from Budulous 
Euripides Lovelopolis, which of course can't fit on any marquee. Just too that is long. hilarious. <laughs> and you know, then created a backstory about this character, and um, he's basically a lovable, uh, full of himself guy who's delusional, who believes he wrote every song ever written, created every musical trend from the bossa nova to folk music to disco <laughs> taught james brown how to dance um you know just a pathological liar yeah but lovable because i do all these things and actually deliver upon them yeah. it's like yeah I, I wrote this song for frank sinatra when i was six in the back of his limo <laughs> after he discovered me on the ed sullivan show <laughs> and we'll do a medley of sinatra songs that i obviously had not written but <laughs> in my mind, I had, and of course, it, it takes off from there. Then of course, Tom Jones, uh, he, he uh, came to me after Sammy Davis brought him, you know, <laughs> of course, I was the one that told Sammy Davis to lose the eye patch and get the glass eye. That is hilarious. Uh, you know, I was also the guy that uh, started the folk music movement. Wow. All delusional yeah. um, feats of, of grandeur. Um, but, you know, we would back it up with a folk medley. We'd back yeah. it up with a Tom Jones medley, and I would do a Tom Jones that, you know, uh, Stephen Holden of the New York Times said was beyond believable. You know, as a matter of fact, <laughs> Stephen Holden of the New York Times, when we were off Broadway for 11 weeks, came in and saw the show, reviewed it, and said I was the ultimate lounge act, which I find to be one of the... The great, yes, uh, the greatest compliments. Absolutely, especially That's... one of, of that stature. I mean, yeah. Stephen Holden is, you know, very well known yes. writer for the time. Absolutely. When we were in New York, that was the the thing that happened. Uh, maybe about two and a half years into this, we were um, working on trying to get a TV show. Uh, so we'd go to LA, and this friend, uh, Cord Cassidy, got a job working uh as uh, clint holmes who you i'm sure know yes uh on a television show that he did for um oh god i'm trying to remember w-o-r in okay. new jersey okay he had a nighttime television show and we came back there and and did the show when he first came on and when we were there we did a show uh in the village at the bottom line and the guy who became our manager came and saw us, flipped out. Mm -hmm. He was doing a show at the Blue Angel Theater called Pageant, which was a drag show oh, making fun of the beauty pageant world. Oh. It was very well written and got you know great reviews. And there was a little lounge in the Blue Angel Theater called the Jewel Box Lounge. And he, he came and saw the show and he said, I want you to come over and take a look at this room i've got an idea and the three of us my partners mark baum known as marky love and michael hatfield known as mikey love no relation <laughs> to each other or buddy love um, it just happened to, you know by the happenstance so he shows us this little room and he goes listen i got this idea i want to bring you guys back to new york and do a little off-broadway stint with the buddy love show i think it'd wow. be great that's great. So we we came in there. We were on the Today Show. Uh, the New York Post came and saw us. Madonna came and saw us. Wow. Chuck Khan came and saw us. <laughs> uh, I mean, everybody. Uh, 
you know, it was That's insane. Fabulous. And I how mean, long did that run? How long New did... York Magazine. Yeah. I got my caricature in the New Yorker. That's I mean, great. It was, it, That's if it was great. 15 minutes of fame, I got 25. That's you know, wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah, so a, how long did that real, show run? How long did the show run? 11 weeks. 11 weeks. 11 weeks. That's great. And, uh, That's great. Then we came back to San Francisco, and we were the darlings of San Francisco. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. We also, when we started this thing, we had a, a, a weekly show at a place called the Paradise Lounge mm -hmm. in San Francisco. Every Tuesday night, uh, we do our show. And it got so popular that we would do a Tuesday night every week and then often come in on a Friday or a Saturday night mm -hmm. uh, so that we would expose ourselves to the weekend crowd, yes. thus boosting our Tuesday night crowd. Yeah, yeah. That went on for 13 years and wow. then the paradise uh, closed. And wow. um, we never got that lightning in a bottle at any other, other club where we Isn't could do a, a weekly sad. show. Yeah, that's fabulous. So now tell me about your band. Um, I, I saw a video of you and the, the band is just smoking. Really, really great players. Have you had them for a long time or have you always worked with that size of a band? The, we start started out as a trio and a real loungy trio. Okay. Drum machine, <laughs> left-handed bass, yeah you know keyboard player yeah and he ran the drum machine and then mark marky love was on saxophone and guitar okay that's how we started that's how we went to new york okay we expanded it um for the corporate world so that we could could create a show and then morph into a, a dance band Oh, because okay. a lot of these corporate events, they, they want dinner entertainment. You yeah. know, they drop the dessert. Yeah. We do a show, and then, then we could come back and do dance. Uh, and, and it worked out pretty well. We Good. were doing quite a few corporate events that way. And then we do a lot of corporate events where it was cheaper to just bring the trio. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and you're, you're moving people. Uh, as you saw, that band is nine pieces. Yeah. When you're moving yeah. ten people, it gets expensive. Oh, yes, it to does. To move three people, yeah. it's nothing. Yeah, it's more difficult. So most of our corporate work was done that way. But we did develop a, a, a bigger version of the Buddy Love Show that could play larger venues to more effect. That's great. Uh, that's great. So that's how the, the big bands, you know, came into the fold. Yeah. And, um, originally, we we are the Buddy Love Show as a trio. Okay. And, and it is loungy as, as get, all get out. <laughs> I mean, it that's is. That's great. The, it, it, really, that's where the comedy sits and lays, because we do all these ridiculous medleys. Yeah. And the, the, the purpose of our medleys was to create a medley where the transition to the next song was in the perfectly wrong place. <laughs> I mean, That's like funny. in the Tom Jones medley, we, you and your pussycat nose, you and your pussycat eyes, you and your green, green grass. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty funny. That, that's just an example of how bad the transitions <laughs> could be. Uh, and the folk medley, uh, the joke there was we would get them to sing along, you know, like Hootenanny time. And then mm -hmm. as they started to sing what, what, what I told them to sing, we would change it. 
That's funny. You know, to the next song. So they didn't know what the heck to sing. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. So now your corporate dates, is this something that you've done through the years in addition to the Vegas things or the, the public shows? Well, you've done a lot they, of private we, things as well. Interestingly enough, the Buddy Love Show only played Vegas as an opening act for Rita Rudner. Okay. Uh, and uh, we never played the lounges in Vegas okay. uh, because it was it was something... And this is really funny. We did play Tahoe once. Mm -hmm. And um, it was one of these horrible lounges where you're way above the audience and there's like poker machines at the bar mm -hmm. around the perimeter of the stage. Yeah. Like six feet below the stage. Wow. So Buddy's shtick would be to go out into the audience and, and kibitz with them and, and do shtick. Mm -hmm. Well, it was tough to do it yeah, like that. Yeah. But I would leave the stage and come down into the audience, and then I'd be bragging about the song I wrote for Wayne Newton when I was twelve. <laughs> and, you know all the. And what happened was the the buyer for the 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 club or for the casino came down to watch the act, and I noticed he was taking notes, mm -hmm. and he's laughing his ass off. Mm -hmm. and, and at the end of the show, he says. This is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. The problem is people are coming in and taking everything you're saying out of context, not oh. really that, realizing that you're a pathological yes. liar and this is yes. a joke. Yes. And yeah. I'm getting actual notes yeah. sent to me by people, patrons coming into the lounge saying you're a pathological liar. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and it was like, it was, are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. People don't get it. So, you know, so at any rate, it, it didn't play in the lounges the way we would have hoped it yeah. would have because these lounges now are are not a sit-down show where there's right. a maitre d' sitting you right. and you're, you're seeing the show from point A to point right. B. Right. You can walk in and walk out at any right. time. Right. So it, it, it wasn't conducive. But when we opened for Rita Rudner, it was fabulous. It was really fun. The That's problem great. was we're a musical act mm -hmm. open for a comedian. And it's tough for a comedian to come on after a musical act, even though right. it's comedy based. That's right. So that was the kiss of death. Rita yeah. Rudner came and said, I love you guys. You're funny as hell, but you're a music act. And yeah. it's really tough for me. So yeah. that was the kiss of death. We never got any more opening spots. Yeah. We were always a spoof of the Las Vegas Lounge Act. Yeah. And to do it in that realm, you have to have a sit-down show. Right, because they have and to know the story time, from the very beginning, uh, you know, throughout the, yeah. the, yeah, the plot. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a point A to point B. Yeah. You can't just walk in and, and you know, not get yeah. that Buddy's delusional and, <laughs> and out of mind yeah. without seeing it from the beginning. Uh, yeah. So... Uh, you know, we did Atlantic City opening for Pat Cooper, another comedian. Mm -hmm. it, that went a little bit better, but not great. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, yeah. It works best when Buddy welcomes his audience yeah. uh, in Keokuk, Iowa, to Las Vegas. That right. was the first thing Buddy would do. Welcome yeah. to Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, that's he just great. He's there. Yeah. He thought yeah. he was in Vegas no matter where he was. That's great. So when you found out that it wasn't working so well in the in the casino or the lounge situations, what did you do to fix it to make it 
work for you at that point? Did, we, we, we didn't. We st stuck with our guns because, you know, it wasn't going to work there. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It just wasn't. So we played the clubs that we always played. We played, you know, like Place Up in Seattle, which was a yeah. rock club. We were playing rock clubs. Yeah. And at the Paradise Lounge, this was a really eclectic uh, place where there were three stages. Mm -hmm. We would play what they called the Buddy Love Room because we were so famous in there for <laughs> the lounge. Mm -hmm. And then across from that was the Blue Room. Now, the Blue Room would have the likes of Chris Isaac, uh, Green Day, you know, when mm -hmm. they were coming up. Yeah. Because it was a yeah. smaller venue. Yeah. And as they got bigger, they would play, you know, larger venues. But the yeah. lounge was perfect for us. Yeah. Um, Stone Temple Pilots. One, I don't know if you know who they no, are, but I they're don't. a huge rock and roll band. Okay. I mean, ginormous. Okay. They used to come and see us at the Paradise Wow, Lounge. that's great. I get a call from my manager um, saying, you'll never guess who wants to open, uh, wants you to open for them at the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I go, Wayne Newton, uh, Tom, <laughs> I don't know who. He goes, I'm telling you, you're not going to believe this. He goes, okay, who? Stone Temple Pilots. Wow. My mouth dropped. I went, that's They're great. huge fans. They've seen you at the Paradise Lounge numerous times. They oh my love gosh, you. that's great! So we ended up opening for them at the Fillmore. That's wonderful. Uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Now, did you have the same manager throughout your career? Has have you worked with the same person, or have you changed, well, or how does that how, how does that work? Um, I kind of manage the group now. Our manager died uh, oh, about yes. seven years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan Scherer, uh, S-C-H-A-R-E-R, mm -hmm. who worked for Ron Delsner, who okay. was a big New York uh, promoter. Mm -hmm. He would be like the Bill Graham of New York. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, Jonathan Scherer and I had crossed paths when I was a junior in high school. Wow. He was working for Ron Delsner uh, doing the Schaefer Music Festival in, in Cambridge. And I was working for Ron Delsner, who's a uh, production uh, chief who worked for Delsner, mm -hmm. uh, had hired me to work for the summer. Mm -hmm. And on one occasion, Jonathan came out from his, you know, uh, I guess they had a trailer back then mm -hmm. where uh, that was where the office was. And he comes running out to me in 19, the summer of 1970. He goes, uh, I don't know what to tell you, but the, the, the sound equipment that uh, needs to be plugged in for the big, huge, giant PA system at Harvard Stadium isn't going to get here in time. What do we do? Oh, boy. And I says, you got the key to the shed where all the equipment is stored. He goes, yeah. I go in there and there was an envelope in there and a 17 year old saved the day for wow. the Schaefer Music Festival. Wow. And that was me. The wow. guy who became our manager was Jonathan Scher, who worked for Ron, uh, for Delsner and came to me for help that day. Wow. We figured this out sitting, looking at each other, you know, how many years later, 19, <laughs> uh, 92. Wow. We're that's sitting great. in the lounge waiting for our sound check. And he goes, You know, you look familiar. And I go, Yeah, you look familiar oh too. Oh my he goes, gosh. You work for, I said, You work for Ron Delson. And I said, Yeah. 
I work for Ron Delsner indirectly. He goes, really? When? I said, the Schaefer Music Festival, (laughs) summer of 1970. His mouth dropped. He said, you saved my ass for the Janis Joplin show. Had no sound equipment. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, you never know how you're going to come yeah. across people again in your life. It's it's pretty yeah. pretty incredible. Now, um, tell me, um, how has uh, your career changed or how have things changed for you during the pandemic? Now, I know that no one's working, yeah. but, but I mean, how have you been spending your time or have you been learning any new things any new projects uh sprucing up writing new music what you know how have you been spending your time Uh, i i I wish i could say i've been a creative uh soul during this time but i um i love to work writing comedy Mm -hmm. with other people Mm -hmm. i find that I try to write some, I've written some stuff with my wife and mm-hmm. that's really funny. Mm-hmm. And she goes, oh, we got to write some more stuff. And, and I, I'm going, who am I writing this for? Yeah. When you're doing comedy, you need feedback. You need an audience to laugh. You yeah. need to hear the laughter to find out what yeah. about that was funny. What can I do to make that funnier? You're right. With the timing of or condensing the jokes yeah. Uh, and this is what we did for years. Mark Baum, Michael Hatfield, and me, we would go and do a show. Mm-hmm. We'd put a new piece in, and we'd realize, mm, this medley's too long. Yeah. It needs to be edited. It needs to be condensed. We need to get to the joke faster. We need yeah. to, you know. Yeah. And then we go back and, and fine-tune it. Mm-hmm. When you don't have normal regular gigs yeah it's tough to write comedy yeah now as far as learning some new songs again who am i learning this for yeah yeah (laughs) that's very true and you know what you're saying is true for for music as well when you're putting together any kind of show you really need the feedback from the audience you know you might love a particular song this has happened to me so many times you know i love this song and i want to do it and it like falls flat on the audience, right. it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm not singing this for myself. I, maybe I need to change my my plan here. So right. you're right. We do need an audience to, to uh, really so own a most, show. Most of the things I've been doing online are things that are established, that I know work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I have, I mean, you saw the, the, the show that we did yes. with my full band. Yeah. Uh, which is available for any of your listeners to uh, check out on Music in place. If you go to YouTube and and look up music in place, music in there's place. a bunch of shows that have been done, and you can kind of scroll down and look for the fabulous Buddy Love show. Okay. And, and and see us. We'll put that um, in our show notes. That's one way for your listeners to check check yeah, us out. Absolutely. There's a bunch of stuff on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it's kind of guerrilla TV. You know, it's not yeah. that good, but. But that one show that you saw, production yeah, was values great. are good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah. So what would you tell a young performer or a new performer going into the business? What kind of advice would you give to them? What would you, you know, tell them to do or not to do or whatever? I mean, what, you know, what have you learned in your career that you feel is valuable that could help someone else? Okay. Um, well, if it, if it was Buddy Love talking... <laughs> He would say stuff like, pay top dollar for everything. <laughs> no one does. That's why you should. It sets you up. You're above the fray. You honor the shop. You own the profession. 
Did Frank get it wholesale? No. <laughs> Did Dean Martin scrounge around a thrift shop looking for a Lambsville V-neck sweater? No. He went to Carroll and Company on Rodeo Drive, and he came home with a garment he could be proud of. Friends, if you if you have friends that pay wholesale, get new friends. <laughs> the words, I don't care what it costs, I've got to have it, should come as easily to you as breathing. Now, that's Buddy Love oh, okay. telling you. Mm-hmm. Now, if it was Buddy, if it was Robert Vickers telling you, I would say, listen to your audience whenever you're performing. Pay attention and give them what they need. And if you're not giving them what they need, you need to find out quickly. They don't give two rats patuchkis about you. Mm-hmm. You need to get them to yeah. pay attention. And by doing so, you need to ingratiate yourself to them in any way you, you know when you're in a conversation with somebody, you know when it's working and you know when it's not working. That same thing applies to your performance. You need to ingratiate yourself to the audience. That's great advice. Now, yeah. Now, Sammy Davis asked permission all the time. He would say, and now with your kind permission, I'd like to sing a song. Buddy Love loves that shtick. That's shtick. Mm-hmm. Those things are hooks that bring people in. It's like, huh? I watched all the greats. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've seen Sinatra. I've seen James Brown. I've seen Prince. I've seen all the greats. And, you know, they all have little gimmicks they use to mm-hmm. pull the audience in. Prince uses this mystery mm-hmm. and, and is unbelievable talent uh, as a visual and musical performer. Sinatra would use tricks like history telling the audience historically what's going on in his life and what a song means to him the conductor of his orchestra mm-hmm. you know he would bring all these elements into his performance telling the audience who wrote the song who arranged the song yeah. uh, what it means to him that sets up a, a beautiful way of bringing the audience into your interpretation of a lyric. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, they're opening their ears and their minds to something else than just a performer. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, there's many, many tricks that mm-hmm. the greats have to pull their audience in. Yes. If you if you have the privilege to see people live, it's even better. But, you know, for any of your listeners that are young, that are looking to professionals, look at look at their performances online if you can find them. Uh, there's a great uh, video of uh, the Rat Pack. If you want to go old school, and you and I are kind of in that same boat of entertaining people in, in a not old-fashioned way mm-hmm. but an old-school way yeah that's right we're school performers we both know how to connect to an audience because mm-hmm. we've been doing it a long, long time, time and we found our our stick our niche yeah um watch the greats watch a james brown video tammy show mm-hmm. t-a-m-i show 
pull that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can uh, look up the Rat Pack um, in St. Louis at the, I believe, Fox Theater, uh, you will get Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. And you'll get to watch all three of them, how they play their established professional way of being on a stage. Yeah. And you get to see it. Yeah, it's great. Sam it's like a role. does impressions. Yeah. Uh, asks the audience permission. And mm-hmm. now with your kind <laughs> gives himself cheese in the yeah. middle of the show <laughs> by saying, you know, Broadway. He does it backhand. He does. He features his drummer as not a regular, a Broadway show drummer. Yes. And by the way, I'm on Broadway myself. Something I did in Golden Boy. You you give yourself cheese. That's it's, yes. you know, it's yeah. sort of an endearing way of the way Sammy worked. Yeah, he always. Uh, uh, it, uh, there's another song of his uh, that I think it's live at the Copa. He sings without a song. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wonderful song from Oklahoma, and yes. there's a section in it where. It goes into a rubato with an orchestra and a conductor obviously leading the the slowed down uh, section of the song mm-hmm. that brings you back into the uh, the verse. Yeah. And and then he gets to sing this grand, you know, ah, and instead of singing the lyric, he goes. Ain't nobody like that. Don't like fried chicken on Sunday. And he's he's giving himself cheese for what he just did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As a tool to bring the audience yeah. into how good it was. Yes, yes. And it was. Yeah. And, and you are. And when you listen to this, you're going, oh, my God, he just nailed that. Yeah, that's and now great. he's giving himself love yeah. for doing what he just yeah. did. That's great. These and, are little gimmicks yeah, yeah. that we all learn as we grow as performers. Yeah. Uh, and, and as we watch, as we watch others. people that you're heroes. Yeah. I like to say this, and I'll steal it from Livingston Taylor, who teaches at Berkeley College of Music, a performance class. Mm-hmm. Listen to your heroes. And then after you've done all of that and can't do it anymore, start to listen to your heroes, heroes. Wow. Wow. And pay attention to them as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and you will you will learn a vast amount of uh of things that will make you a better entertainer and a better performer. That's wonderful. Some people are not entertainers, they're performers. You're right. You're right. And and that's an uh, important thing to recognize that people yeah. are looking to be entertained. They're not just, you know, yeah. it's not about us as the performers. It is about that audience and it is up to us to reach out to them and to bring them into our world and and to, to send them home with truly having gone through the gamut of laughter and crying and all of these different things, you know. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, yep, absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Bobby for all of your advice and your recommendations to, to new and younger uh, singers. Uh, we have loved the history of your career. Very exciting. You've done a lot of wonderful things. And I look forward to following your career and seeing what, what the post-pandemic era brings for you. 
and we're looking and forward I, to seeing that for all of I us. Look, and I look forward to seeing you out there performing. Wonderful. Uh, we will keep in touch. It's Absolutely. been a delight to be with you and well, your, thank your you. Uh, listeners. And, thank uh, you. you know, we'll, we'll see you on the stage sometime. Okay, time. Bobby. Thank you so much. So we've been talking with Bobby Vickers um, of the fabulous Bud E. Love Show. He is fantastic. Please check him out online. We will put his information in our show notes. Thank you, Bobby. Talk to you later. Happy holidays. All right. Thank you. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Business Savvy Singer Podcast is brought to you by the privatemusicstudio.net, Eternal Wolf Music, and Greta Pope Entertainment. Let us know if you know of a singer who is having great success in the music business. We'd love to share their story and their journey on this podcast. Send your emails to info at gretapope.com. We've had a great time with you today. See you next time on the Business Savvy Singer Podcast. Twenty twenty has been a year like no other. We've all had to adjust to a new normal. We've each had to forge our own path through this unprecedented time. There have been all kinds of struggles. Some have had no jobs and have struggled to pay their rent and mortgages. They've struggled to feed their families. Others have had to figure out how to work from home and navigate all of the things related to that. Childcare, homeschooling, keeping our children entertained and uplifted, keeping ourselves and our families encouraged, these things have all been challenges. It's been a tough time. For singers, musicians, actors, entertainers, along with all of the places that we work, the theaters, clubs, hotels, restaurants, and so many other venues. Everything has been shut down for almost a year now. For many of us, there has been no business at all. Thank you to the many frontline workers, the doctors, nurses, emergency medical personnel, grocery store workers, policemen, firemen, truckers, teachers, and all of those who have kept America going. We owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude. This has been a period of innovation, 
a time to recognize and celebrate the resilience of the human spirit. We've learned so much during this time. We've done so much to survive during this time. We have a lot to feel good about. We look forward with hope to 2021. May God richly bless you and your family. Wishing you a happy, healthy, and prosperous New Year.